Napa know-how. A Napa guy knows more isn't always better. Unless we're talking about full-size vans. These beasts do more than get you from A to B. They have so much space a man can live in it. With shag carpeting, waterbed, and a sweet lava lamp, these mobile abodes have all the comforts of home. With quality parts and plenty of Napa know-how, you can keep the original tiny house running longer, stronger. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America. With your host, Scott Speed. podcast. My name is Dr. Scott Speed and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. Today I am joined by my good friend Nick Post and I'm really excited for this interview. I've been wanting to get him on for a while to bring his expertise and his experience. Uh, I think that you all will enjoy, you know, his perspectives and what he has to share and I'm really looking forward to, you know, interviewing him as well as dialoguing with him uh, about a few positions that he has. So with all that being said, I want to introduce Nick. Nick, how you doing? Hey, Scott. I'm doing well, man. Happy to be here with you today. Man, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on, my friend. So um, before you tell our listeners, well, actually, let's start out with you telling our listeners, um, you know, a little bit about yourself, and then I'll share uh, how, we, how we met, uh, a little, give a little background there. But if you don't mind, just give our, our listeners a brief bio, uh, whatever you'd like to share, uh, current occupation, family, and then we'll get more into, uh, you know, the last few years uh, as, we go, as we go through the show. Okay. All right. Thanks. So just a little bit about me. Uh, so I currently I live in Texas. I run a security consulting company with three other partners. And uh, what we do in that sphere is we work in the public and the private sector. So we'll teach uh, some training courses the the different uh, units inside the U.S. government. And then we also work on uh, some physical and cybersecurity assessments and then uh, risk mitigation, vulnerability, and uh, it's what's called red teaming. So looking for areas where there may be weaknesses in certain, whether it's a peer network or whether it's a physical structure, and then how how to fix that. So I've been doing that for the last, a little over three years. Also uh, building a real estate investment company uh, with the, the goal of uh, acquiring multiple properties uh, to build another source of income uh, for myself and my wife and then my newborn uh, baby boy. That's it, man. 30 seconds. If you want to talk about history, you can do that as well. But that's what I got going on right now uh, in my life. Awesome. That's perfect. That's perfect. Let's, let's start there. Um, and we'll get into okay. everything else as we go here. But, um, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. And just so our listeners um, – you know, give, have an idea how we met. Um, you know, before I before I even go there, can you hear me okay, Nick? Am I loud and clear? Yeah, I got I got you good. Good. Okay. So, uh, the way we met, uh, Nick and I are actually college buddies. Uh, we played basketball together um, at King's College in Pennsylvania, 
and uh, we met on the the basketball court pretty much, um, in my recollection, recollection, and um, we developed a friendship from there. And um, you know, Nick was, you know, very very passionate about basketball at that time. And I remember, man, what I remember the most about about those years, Nick, was that you were just like really really passionate about working on your game and trying to become the best baller possible. I don't even know if I've ever mentioned on this show that I that I play basketball, but um, that's what I remember, you know, about that time, man. And, and I want to kind of get into a little bit of that in the interview. I got some questions about that time, but uh, that's that's how we met. And um, you know, and and again, we'll kind of go a little bit deeper uh, from there. But I'll share that, uh, you know, after after school, you know, Nick, uh, you know, he moved on and and we kind of lost contact for a few years, and then we were able to reconnect. Uh, we sat down and. Uh, you know, had a nice long conversation about what's transpired over the last few years of our lives since we've, um, you know, we lost contact, and we've been back in contact ever since, man. And I'll I'll share this for the first time. I was actually worried about this guy, man. And I I know I told him this, uh, you know, face to face when we sat down. But uh, again, as, after we get into a little bit of his uh, his history over the last you know decade or so, you'll understand why I was uh, concerned and worried and hope that we have a chance to reconnect again. But um, with that being said, before we go there, let's just jump right into the interview. Uh, I like to start out, because this is a show about race relations in America, uh, I'd like to ask you, Nick, uh, what is your ethnicity, and uh, how do you identify? Uh, so I'm a, I'm a Caucasian. I grew up, I grew up okay. Italian, in an Italian-Irish uh, uh, family, which means I got a quick temper and I talk with my hands, and uh, that was... <laughs> Uh, that that was how we uh, we were raised, uh, and that and that's yeah. Okay, and where did you grow up? So I grew up in Connecticut. I spent most of uh, most of my life in New all my life in New England, but uh, most of it was in Connecticut. I also lived a little bit in Boston, and uh, and uh, uh, was born in Rhode Island. So I kind of bopped around a little bit, and then after uh, after I graduated college and I left uh, for the military. I lived in a couple of different locations, uh, North Carolina, Colorado, and then, and then Virginia. Okay. And in terms of, of growing up, let's just talk about your formative years first. Um, you know, growing up yep. in New England, you know, you pretty much grew up all throughout New England. Um, what was your views on race in America? Do you remember having any distinct views prior to us meeting in college? Um, what were your views on race in America growing up or anything you were taught? Were you taught anything explicitly about, you know, race in America, the history of race in America? Just uh, share a little bit with me about that. So growing up, it was, we didn't, it was not any uh, discussion, I guess you could say on the, the way that your, your show is built, I think, in, in, in that, looking at race the way that you focus on we were just we're raised as people are people and we respect people based on what how they treat you not based on any color of their skin or any anything else that may differentiate uh differentiate you from somebody else okay and did you grow up in a diverse area or were you in pretty much uh predominantly uh european american communities <laughs> no i grew so the area that i grew up in was uh, I was a suburb of a, of a smaller city, and so it was a uh, it was 
I'm trying to think back now on my neighbors, man. That was a, it was probably uh, probably 75, 25, I would say, as far as as far as uh, you know, uh, you had the you know, white neighbors. You had some of them. You had your you know, your African American or Hispanic or uh, whatever other uh, whatever other race and ethnicity was in there. In in that area in particular, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of his, it was a larger Hispanic population uh, in in uh, okay. in that city uh, itself. So what the, the okay. sport, sports is where I actually got in and really got in, in and mixed with a lot of different ethnicities, races, colors, creeds. Because as you know, man, sports draws all that together. There's really no way to to, yep. <laughs> to hide out when you're you know try to. If you if you believe that kind of stuff, try to stick with just one, you know, one group because you just throw into the mix and it's generally it's a meritocracy, right? So the best players are going to play together because the one thing you want to do is win. So <laughs> you show up at the basketball court or the baseball field or the football field or whatever, your talent is going to uh, either going to sink or swim in that environment. Absolutely. Were there any? Um, so so you grew up in a household where everyone was. You know, you were taught that everyone was an individual and you judge people based on how they treat you. Um, when you got out into the sports world or just in your neighborhood and community, did you, ever, did you ever notice any, like, racial tension growing up or were there any, like, major race-related incidents that you experienced that may have shaped your views on race in any way? No, the, 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 the way that I – because of the way I was blessed to have a mother and father that were – that, that raised us correctly and, and, and taught us right from wrong and, and, and taught, didn't have any built-in prejudices or didn't have any of that kind of stuff. That, that's how I, uh, that's how I approach life. Now for sure, absolutely. Did I see, did I see interactions between different races and different uh, ethnicities? And then there was some hatred behind those for sure. Absolutely. I don't think you can not grow up and not see that meanness and that, you know, making fun of people based off of nothing that they can control, right? They just, that's who they are. Right. And sure, for sure that was there. Did it influence me? No. Okay. No, because again, man, I was blessed enough to have that upbringing where we looked at everybody as an individual. You treat them the way that they treat you. It really doesn't matter what they look like. It's how, and I don't want to stare at, you know, I don't want to get all niche or uh, cliche and everything like that. that. But that's just the way it was. It was you know, we you got a situation where you're just making fun of people. You know, my mom was right there to, hey, man, look, you know, quickly correct. Hey, that's not how you treat somebody. And then uh, right. you know, that was just, like I can say, just blessed, man. I just had a, a wonderful family. And I, uh, the older you get, the more you realize how truly blessed, uh, uh, you know, how truly blessed I was to have that supportive family. Absolutely. Well, I can speak to that in the sense that uh, in my experience and in our interactions, you know, one of the, one of the things I think of uh, very fondly as well when we went to Miami. You, do you remember that trip? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, man. I can't forget that trip. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, that was a so fun time, when, uh, our, Oh, it was a great time, man. It was a great time. And, you know, for the listeners, you know, uh, the year that uh, most of us graduated um, uh, that were in my, you know, my year, um, and I know Nick went on. He left King's College and went on to play basketball somewhere else after that year. Um, and But I remember that year, which was our senior year of basketball for myself and some of our other friends, 
uh, we took a trip, um, not just basketball players, but a handful of us, a handful of friends, we took a trip uh, down to Miami. It was uh, basically uh, about five or six African-American guys and, and Nick as the only European-American guy on the trip. And, you know, I remember um, it wasn't like for me and, and for us, you know, we just were, we were just friends. You know, it was never, it wasn't anything that, um, you know, there was nothing. That, it was just we were just friends. That's the bottom line. But the unique thing about it was on campus uh, at King's College, there were some uh, race-related issues in the sense that, you know, the school was literally 97% uh, Americans of European descent. And then there was a very small percentage of other ethnicities and with African-Americans being the larger uh, of that other percentage. And the majority of us were athletes. Okay, uh, I was there playing basketball, and there was a bunch of football, African-American basketball players and football players, and then maybe I can count on one hand, like maybe one or two African-American um, uh, women, young women, and then there were a handful of Caribbean, um, uh, Af- Af- Afro-Caribbean women on campus as well, uh, maybe literally a handful. So it was just, you know, without boring the listeners about, you know, some of the things that I experienced uh, while in college, um, you know, I just wanted to ask you, Nick, did you ever even notice that dynamic, like, hey, I'm going with all these African-American guys, uh, or was it just, hey, I'm going with my buddies, and, you know, we all play ball, you know, we always play ball together, we always hung out together, and, um, you know, just was there anything there that you noticed, or let me ask you this, you hung out with us a lot, did anyone at King's College, uh, any European-American kids at King's College ever say anything to you, like, hey, why do you hang out with those guys so much, did you ever experience anything like that? No, I can't. I can't say that I did. I don't remember any of that, any of that happening. I don't think anybody ever questioned anybody. I'm sure maybe they did, maybe behind my back or or behind anybody else's back. But I, right now, looking back, man, I can't remember anybody doing that. And I, and part of it is we because we, like I said, we just we had the same uh, beliefs. Not a lot. Not all of us. We had a lot of the same common goals. Everybody was focused on excelling at their respective sport, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, whatever it was. And that, that common, I don't know, that common bond just, just drew us together. And right. I, I, I would, looking back, so, you know, well, I'm sure we'll get to this a couple of months a little bit, but in the military, you want to go to, you want to go overseas in, in, the, in the war with the guys that are going to have your back. And, and so if right. you extrapolate that back to King's College, I, I wanted to be with guys that had my back again could care less you know what what they look like it was it was like it was shared beliefs it was shared character it was shared goals shared work ethic and you you know we drew it it, and we got along I mean that was it and we we liked hanging out we played video games played basketball and and sure we we can compete like crazy right I mean we used to go at each other on the basketball court everybody you know it, everybody's feelings would be hurt at the end, and he calling names and swearing at each other. Right? And then <laughs> half hour, half hour later, something or hour later, you know, you, you're back in the in the cafeteria, laughing about it and, and, and that thing. So, yeah, I, I it never, you know, it never it never bothered me. I never looked at it, and I just enjoyed having quality people to to, to be around and, and to compete with. Right. Yeah, man, definitely um, bring back some fond memories, man. I know you, I remember you being super competitive, man, and and you and Corey used to always go at it. I remember that. Um, <laughs> yeah, he always used to beat but, me. But um, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, I think he was I got him once or twice, but the majority beat, of beat all of us. He got me. <laughs> um, well, you know, uh, with you and the listeners, I'm not sure, Nick, if you even remember this event. Um, but there was a time, there was one time where uh, on campus, you know, there was um, some stories and some rumblings about, you know, um, European-American students calling myself and some of the other African-Americans using the, the N-word, and I'm just going to say it because this is a, a grown-up show, uh, the word that I don't like, but I'll say it, nigger, um, using the term nigger to describe us behind our back. And there was a day when I wrote on a, a white T-shirt in a big black marker, uh, Sharpie, um, you know, don't smile in my face on the front of the shirt. And then on the back I wrote and called me a nigger behind my back. And then I stood like in the main uh, corridor of campus leading to the cafeteria and like outside the, outside the uh, men's dorm. And, um, and I just stood there all day with that T-shirt on just to make a statement. And Do you remember that by, mm-hmm. by any chance? Does that ring a bell with you? No, you I, I don't. When was, when was that? Was that freshman year? You know what, man? I don't recall. I know it wasn't freshman year. It was def- it was probably junior or junior or senior year. No doubt it was it was later on. But um, you know that was something yeah, I, no, did I don't remember because that. you know there was, you know while there was um, one of the stories I tell about King's College is that it was a culture shock for me, uh, obviously because of the 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 ratios that I just mentioned. But one of the things that really helped me as an inner city kid coming from Philly is that I had a chance to meet people like you. And plenty, plenty, plenty other friends, I could just start rattling off a ton of names of people who I did not, you know, get any of that from, and I felt like the relationships were genuine, and that totally uh, broadened my perspective on race relations at a young age, and it put me in a position where a lot of times when I'm speaking to, uh, especially when we were younger, but when I would speak to certain friends or family members in Philly who pretty much only hung around African-American people, they were of a framework and a mindset where they kind of generalized and they felt like if they, you know, like all European Americans carried a certain belief or certain prejudices and et cetera. And by going to King's college, it was really, you know, illuminating for me to have a chance to, to build relationships and realize that, you know, just individuals are individuals. Some individuals, you know, have certain prejudices and some, you know, are just good and don't and et cetera, et cetera. But I was able to kind of, you know, uh, make those um, distinctions in my mind and carry those into my adulthood, and that's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about doing this work. But uh, I do have a question for you, and, again, I, don't, I know it's a long time ago, but do you remember any, you know, overt racism or, or things being said um, while you were on campus around just other European Americans? Is that something that you remember distinctly? Um, I, I don't. I'm sure, again, I'm sure that it happened. I, do I remember a specific incident? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, okay. I, don't, I don't have any, I just like, to... I couldn't point to anything. Okay. No, that's fine. I just, just, just trying to, you know, see if there's anything that, that you have, but if not, that's perfectly okay too. No. Um, so, 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 so with that being said, um, you know, just in having this conversation and, and, and trying to uh, ask these questions to kind of shed some light on some nuance and uh, within the relationship dynamics of, of King's College and, and us meeting, um, I want to go ahead and get into, um, you know, your, what you did after college. Um, so if you could just very briefly, before we get into it in detail, uh, I'm going to take a, a quick break. Uh, but before I take this quick uh, promo break, um, I want you to just tell our listeners, um, I want to share that Nick was, I'll share that Nick was, uh, he went into the military after school. And, Nick, if you could share with our listeners just very briefly in um, 
you know, what your uh, what branch you went into and, and what you, you know, just kind of your military resume, uh, your ranks, your titles, and, and anything that's relevant there. And then we'll come back in and kind of, you know, break that down. Sure. So after after I graduated in 2002, uh, I left and, and I, I joined the military, like Scott said, and I, I went in the Army. And particularly in the Army, I went into uh, the Special Forces. And the U.S. Army has – oftentimes in the news you'll hear Special Forces and they'll throw it across the spectrum and they re, when they re, re, uh, refer to any uh, Special Operations unit. But in particular, the U.S. Army – has a unit called the U.S. Army Special Forces, and they're, they're more popularly known as the Green Berets. And so that's, that's what I did after I, I left school. I enlisted, and then I uh, went through the pipeline, earned my, my tab and my beret, and then I spent uh, a little over 11 years on active duty in, in, underneath that job. And so the, as far as rank, okay. I ended up uh, getting promoted all the way up to uh, Master Sergeant, uh, but I I, uh, I turned that down uh, to get out. If I had accepted that rank after being promoted there, I would have had to stay another three years, and I, I didn't want to stay anymore. And so I turned that down, and I, I got out in uh, 2000, early 2014. Okay. And um, how many tours did you do? Are you allowed to disclose that? So yeah, yeah. So I uh, I, I did nine uh, did nine deployments overseas in those. Uh, in those 11 years. So I spent a lot of time okay. uh, in those uh, those fun spots, which are hot and sandy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> spent a lot of time over there in, in my time uh, on, on active duty. Okay. Well, before we uh, dig a little bit into uh, some of that info, that exciting uh, info for me at least, and hopefully for some of our listeners, uh, I want to take a quick break uh, to tell our listeners how, uh, they can become uh, a patron of the Race Haven podcast. For those of you who enjoy the content, for those of you who enjoy this critical, uh, the critical thinking that goes on here and, and everything that we do in terms of the dialogue and the various guests and interviews, uh, I want to encourage you to consider uh, becoming a patron of the show. Uh, my goal is to have an entirely user-supported show where I don't have to go out and solicit advertisements uh, outside of the advertisements that the platform uh, that I use automatically plugs in uh, I want to get rid of those, and in terms of supporting the, the growth of the show, uh, in terms of uh, bringing on uh, various talent to help edit or produce the shows, the, this, there's so many levels to this podcast game, and uh, because this, is, this isn't the only thing I do and because of where my expertise lies and doesn't lie, uh, there's, there's resources out there that could help. And in order to, you know, uh, accomplish some of those things, uh, you know, uh, we need your support. So for those of you who uh, consistently uh, enjoy this show, please visit racehavenpodcast.com. In the top right-hand corner, you can click on Become a Patron, or you can visit patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash racehaven, patreon.com forward slash racehaven to learn about our goals and some of the perks you can get uh, for becoming a patron. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, to all of the patrons who have supported to this point. And I appreciate all of you. So continuing on with the, uh, the guest, uh, my guest, and my good friend, uh, Nick Pulse, uh, you know, as Nick stated when, in 2002, you know, he went into the, to the armed forces and uh, he went into the special forces. And, and as all of you know, 
that was right around uh, 9/11. Uh, you know, 2000. I'm sorry, 2001 uh, was 9/11, and, and, and shortly after that, Nick went off. Um, you know, into the into the army, and I lost touch with Nick. And you know, for years, for years, for years, I literally would think about Nick, and you know, just hope and pray to God that he was okay. And hope to pray to God that you know he would come out the other end, uh, and we'd be able to be pals again. And as you can see, you know we uh, we've reconnected, and uh, we had a chance to spend some time together in Atlanta a few months ago. And um, you know I was able to share some things with him, and, and and we just caught up. And it was really cool to catch up and just get an idea of his experiences over those 11 years that he was active duty. And you know I'm fascinated, you know, by the work that he's done. And, um, you know, I just have a couple of questions about some of the work he's done, as well as uh, I want to get into, you know, some of the events around patriotism in America, you know, because as someone who's done what he's done, who's experienced what he has experienced, uh, I have some questions about that. Uh, particularly, there was a big, uh, you know, event uh, in the last few months uh, during the football season with Colin Kaepernick, and then also some of the recent thoughts on Syria and what's going on there. He's going to shed some light on that. And then also we're going to close out with discussing uh, his podcast because Nick does a podcast uh, called The Iconoclast. So those are the topics that we're going to hit uh, in the next few segments, and uh, I'm excited to get to those questions. So, Nick, you're still with me and you're ready? Yeah, I'm ready, man. Let's do it. Awesome, man. So, uh, so why, why, why the Army? Why Special Forces? Uh, so at that point in – in, in my life, uh, when I, you know, shortly after 9-11, you know, 9-11 hit in uh, September, and then within a year, uh, I, I, I was I graduated college in May and then uh, ended up enlisting. And I, I just wanted to go do, you know. I just wanted to get go do and get overseas and, uh, and, and get in the action and be a contributor. Mm-hmm. Had you always felt that growing up? Did you know that that was was that something that you felt as a kid and, and as a teen and even when we were in college? Like you know, I I kind of, did you always have that itch, or was nine eleven the motivating factor that kind of no, awakened I, that inside? No, of you? it wasn't. No, I, I mean I always I grew up in uh, I was always interested in in foreign policy and and that that uh, that military you know family members that that served in the military previously and so that was always something I had an interest in did I ever did I ever think I was gonna uh, grow up and be a soldier no <laughs> I wanted to grow up and be a I wanted to play basketball man that's what I did for the time I was like two and until uh you know until the end of college I just all that's the only thing I love to do and it wasn't until after um after the last season senior season ended that I started to look at my options for uh for after after college and then the, then the military came up, and not strictly the military, but they had a, a specific contract, and it was called the, the 18 X-ray contract. And what that would allow an individual like myself to do is that you could enlist and then go right into the into the pipeline that allowed you to, if you you passed all the tests and you, and you made all the, the the qualifications to earn your to earn your green beret at the end of that pipeline, where previously. The only way to get into the Army Special Forces was to join the military as, say, an infantryman or an airborne soldier, spend some time at the individual unit, and then go and try out for selection. And so when 9-11 
happened and the the uh, the strategic decision was made by whoever you know, Department of Defense or even higher. It was mo- most likely it was you know, it seems to be Rumsfeld that made that decision is that they were going to prosecute this war differently than other wars in the past, and it was going to be a soft centric war. And so what they they found out is they were very because it's because there's such a long past and there's a lot of gates you have to pass through and there's a lot of tests you have to pass. It takes a long time to to create a special forces soldier. And so when 9-11 kicked off and, and we had this new war where it was going to be soft-specific and soft-centric, the, the powers that be at the senior level realized that they were severely understaffed on the special operations, specifically the the Green Berets, because this is going to be their, their type of war because of their, some of their missions. And they said, okay, we got to make a change, and we're going to offer this contract vehicle to individuals that meet specific skill sets prior to joining the military. So those specific skill sets were, like, were generally older, uh, more, you know, older, more mature. They were looking for college degrees. You had to score very high on the entrance exam. To even get in the military, you had to take a, a language uh, type of test, and you had to score in a certain bracket on that test. You had to have a certain PT score, and all that was bundled in, and then you had that, and then you would say, okay, this individual we think is going to have a chance at making it all the way through, and so we're going to offer him an 18, it was called an 18 x-ray contract. So now that's a long-winded way, but that's why I ended up going the route I ended up going because that opportunity uh, presented itself at that time in my life. Sure. Uh, that, that makes sense. Um, so, wow. So with that being said, um, let's see. I, I mean, we covered so much, and I know some of the stuff you and I talked about is sensitive. Let me ask you this. Um, how mm-hmm. – how, so – I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question. Um, in okay. terms of your views on America and what America stands for and who we all are as Americans and what you are fighting for, uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, you know, theories and there's a lot of uh, skepticism uh, out there about how we execute uh, foreign policy. Uh, when I say we mm-hmm. Americans uh, and the higher-ups execute foreign policy and the motivations behind you know, some of the, um, the policies and, and the decisions to go to war and the decisions to uh, pursue various interests uh, overseas and the reasons why and all these various things. And you have segments of Americans who are pretty much what I would say are loyalists, and they pretty much, if the generals and the president say it's a go, then I'm behind it all the way. Let's go. Let's win. Let's kick some butt. And then you have your Americans who, uh, who are a little bit more um, – I guess, uh, cynical or the Americans who are a little bit more conscious and, or let's say peace-loving. And I'm not saying these are all one and the same. There could be different reasons that motivate uh, some of this uh, skepticism behind all those decisions who aren't just total 100% loyalists. Um, so when you, you know, as you move through the ranks and you started, you know, going on these deployments, um, I want to know if you changed any way, if anything changed uh, in terms of why you were there, well, I'm sorry, why you went in, your motivations for going in, and if any of your experiences ch- changed you in any way in terms of how you, you know, you saw foreign policy and how you saw, you know, your role as a Green Beret Special Forces uh, soldier, uh, I just want to know if that changed the way you see America 
and foreign policy, especially in terms of, you know, uh, deploying soldiers uh, to fight in, in various wars throughout the world. I know that's a lot, but I think you can pull a few things from that that you maybe can uh, <laughs> shed some light on for the listeners. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a loaded uh, loaded question for sure. All right, so, so backing up, I think the first, the first probably way to answer that is absolutely, absolutely uh, my outlook on life changed from when I, when I signed up as a, a, you know, like a little wet behind the ears knucklehead till when I ended up leaving and, uh, and, and, and leaving the military inst- instead of staying for, uh, you know, for the, for the career, right? Absolutely, absolutely a change. And it changed because of uh, life experiences. Uh, it's a whole different viewpoint that I developed, and I, and I can't speak for anybody else, uh, but I can assume others who also have gone down similar paths where they spend a lot of time overseas. Uh, it changes the way that, that I looked at things because I was now seeing and feeling and doing things through my own two eyes as opposed to understanding the world through filtered, uh, filtered reports. And, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but here's what I mean. So me as an individual in a certain country in the Middle East or Africa, which is a hot spot, right? There's a lot of uh, maybe military action or there's a lot of crisis or, or, or something like that. You being on the ground and interacting with the plethora of, of players, whether it's the, the host, the, whether it's a military force from that host nation, whether it's the, the, uh, the citizens of that country that aren't, in the, are not fighters at all, they're just living in the country when all this war is breaking out, whether it's NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations that are in that uh, area providing, attempting to provide aid or building wells or something like that, to the other foreign, uh, foreign, not the third country. So think like, just use as an example Iraq right now, right? So you have in Iraq, you have the Americans, you got the Brits, you got the Australians, you got probably Russians, you got Chinese, et cetera, all, all the way out, Iranians. And, and so interacting with those third country nationals in, in the course of your day-to-day, uh, your day-to-day operations, as opposed to, okay, so that's one, so you're actually interacting. And then as opposed to reading, reading uh, reports or reading news articles or, 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 or reading books, because what do you get from that experience is you get a filtered viewpoint. Not right, I mean, you, we can argue right or wrong, but it's filtered. It's I intake world, world views, and then I output my filter on, on that worldview. And, and or what I was doing is I had the I was blessed to be without that filter. I was physically sitting down and drinking tea or talking, eating, uh, eating kebab or eating goat for breakfast, right? And physically talking and learning and dialoguing back and forth with individuals right. in that country. And, and so it changed, it sure does, man. It changes, absolutely changed the way uh, I looked at stuff. Man, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, hmm. um, so in terms of, like, what does that change look like? Okay. So the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot, right? One of the things that did, one, of the thing, one big change was I had a greater understanding and greater appreciation of our country, the United States. 
and the re- and and the values that while we've, we we can we can just dis- argue and disagree and, and as things have gone off the rails, but the the values that a majority and the, the American values, you know, you think of individualism, freedom, uh, family, uh, religion, all that that kind of stuff that makes up the core of American values that crosses the the political spectrum. I had a much greater appreciation for that because living, breathing, operating, working in specific countries you see how the, how the country and how the interaction actually is versus what you would read. Again, I get back to – and here's what I mean. Like you, you'll sit down and you'll have a meal at someone's house. And maybe it's a, a partner force that you're working with, and they invite you back to, to your house. You break bread with them. You sit down, and you eat. You drink tea, and you get to listen to what their views are on their country Again, in Iraq as an example, what their view is on the government in Iraq, what their view is on their, their lives, their families, what do they want? Because oftentimes that gets stereotyped or generalized mm-hmm. at, a, at a higher level, and you get this block of Iraqis want this or Sunnis want that or Shiites want that, which it, it fits a narrative, great, but you have individuals in, in underneath those blocks, and all individuals don't think alike. Don't act alike, right. and so that that's kind of one change because they then sit down and tell you how much they respect and, and what they think of America, and and, and what they think of what America stands for, and, and and what you're doing in their country, whether they support it, they don't support it, what they see your role is, because uh, a lot of that stuff gets lost when you have the the talking heads going back and forth on TV you know, what they think you should do and what they think we should be doing. And, and most of the time, those talking heads have never set foot in that country, never have actually sat down and drank tea or articulated and had a conversation with individuals in that country on how policy is actually affecting them. Was there anything that uh, changed? Well, no. All, well, first of all, let me say this. All of that makes sense in terms of just you know, untilling the layers and getting down. And when you sit down with people one-to-one, I mean, that's when you really learn a lot. And um, it breaks through, like you said, all of the, um, I guess, the media hype and the generalizations and everything. Uh, that's, that's just priceless experience. Um, is there anything – so, okay, so you said that you had a greater appreciation for the U.S. Um, right. based on some of those conversations because you realized some of the freedoms, some of the individual freedoms and some of the, the cultural things that we have that we – uh, are privileged to have as American citizens. Uh, was there anything right. that um, was there anything that you experienced that changed you in a way where you said, "I don't necessarily like that about America," or "I don't like that about our foreign policy"? Yes. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure, and and absolutely, absolutely, and and if you have foreign policy, like so specifically. The fact usually what happens on the foreign policy level again is you have individuals that have a view uh, and, and a uh, something they want to impart and, and do in a, in a certain country, or whatever. Again, without actually having been in understanding a deeper understanding of that. What I mean by that is you may see you have these high level visits where you know a representative will come over and they'll meet with a senior, you know. Uh, President or senior official of that country, uh, and they'll talk, 
and they'll see you see uh, you know, the dog and pony show where they get around and they do the old uh, look at the troops. And, but it's all superficial, right? It's all staged. It's, it's, it's all for show. It's, it's not – you don't get a, a greater – you don't get a good understanding unless you've actually been in country. And so because you don't have that, that, that understanding now, your view is, is – you're trying to do things that may or may not work. Uh, in, in that, and you don't have, and your only way of figuring it out is by, unfortunately, maybe by just doing a, you know, a, a, some type of military action or, or, or whatever that is. So I had the, uh, the, I guess the, a lot of the, the talking heads, that part of the foreign policy, I, I, I changed the way I looked at it and I lost a lot of respect for it because it was more in, uh, intellectual versus actually having the on the ground knowledge to understand the dynamics of that specific, you know, specific country. Like I would bet you. So are you saying as an example? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say as an example, you know, you, some of the more, you know, the, the recent thing, you know, the Syria, right. I would be willing to bet that majority of the, talking heads that are discussing whether to allow cruise missiles or not allow cruise missiles would not be able to articulate the history of Syria and why that matters and why that has led up to where we're at. And one of the things that I would say recognizes from just having done a little bit of what I did is that we often default to history starting when from the day we were born. And then we, we use that, that's the optic that we, we, we push forward to. Well, if you take that optic, you, you miss a lot of the things that led up to what got, why we're at this position. And you can't fix or you can't change or you can't resolve a, a problem of this a dispute without having a, a historical understanding of, of you, know, you know, what got to, you know, what got to this, where we're at right now. So I, understand and I appreciate historical context. I think that's so important. That leads me to this question. Do you feel like you were actually solving problems or do you feel like you were just a cog in a system? At the, so that's a good question because. Or let me, let me, let me further I'm, clarify. A cog, okay. let me further clarify. A cog in a system that wasn't about solving problems. <laughs> you know, it, it was just about kind of, so like, were you were you there to solve problems and, 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 and enact solutions and or were you just a cog in a system that wasn't really at the core the goal wasn't necessarily to actually solve problems uh or find solutions. There was something greater happening, maybe financially driven and power driven. Well, I th- I think a lot of the underlying assumptions that were made uh leading up to a lot of the, the military action in you know, the last uh, 10 plus years were, uh, were incorrect and were, were, were done, uh, were, were proven wrong. And, and because of that, the strategy that we implemented uh, made a lot of things worse. And I, well, here's what I mean by that. Is, there's, a, there's a belief that exists in at, at, the, at some of the higher levels is that the military should be like this, this nation building or this, uh, uh, almost like a global police force, when really the military is there to break things and kill people. I mean, that, that's, 
that's its ultimate that's its ultimate aim, and and that's why I would think you want to be really cautious and careful before you actually employ the military because that that should be its role. When it gets outside its role and you get into this this nation building and this um, engagement, and you have these attempts to use soldiers and airmen and Marines and, 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 uh, and Naval personnel to stabilize and, and do a lot of this work that they're not trained for. Things tend to go off the rails. And, and that's a lot of the, what happened, uh, in, in, uh, a lot of those Middle Eastern countries it's still going on right now. And things, you know, a place like Iraq and Afghanistan is that the, the, the role of the military has shifted so much and it's, And so that's why some of those assumptions, I think, were wrong, and uh, they're proven why. Okay. So so I appreciate that. Um, Let's transition to uh, Colin Kaepernick's uh, situation last year during the football season. Uh, And, you know, it was a big news story, and it's something we covered during this show, um, because a lot of Americans, based on their lens, based on their perspective, as always, a lot of we all saw it uh, in different a spectrum of different ways. People saw his actions, um, and mm-hmm. a lot of the people, um, you know, were saying that it was disrespectful to the military. Um, the fact that you know he chose to kneel during the national anthem, uh, it didn't show. You know, some people said you know it's disrespectful to the flag, whatever that means. Um, but also beyond that, it's disrespectful to the people who serve this country, like yourself, who put your lives on the line to serve this country. And again, whatever that means, fight for this country's freedom or whatever that means. And that's actually a question I have for you. And I guess that was, uh, you, you know, I'll get to that in a second. And I, I kind of asked it when I said, do you feel like you were solving problems? Cause I hear people say, uh, you know, fighting for freedom, but I'll go to that in a second. So let's go to, mm-hmm. to Kaepernick though. Um, you know, where do you fall or where, where did you fall on his choice to, uh, you know, take a knee during the national anthem? I never, I, I could care less. Uh, quite frankly, I could care less. And I, I understand there was a lot of heartburn and I, and I you know, I had those discussions with people and uh, what they, why they thought what they did and, and why they thought he was disrespecting the military. For me, I was, it was a non-issue. I mean, I could, I could have cared less. He wanted to kneel, kneel. Didn't matter to me. Okay, so there was no, there was no, 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 no feelings towards it. Doesn't matter to you at all. Um, you know, from the, I'm a, I'm a military person. Did you, did you get any sense, uh, or did you have any feelings about it from a social activism standpoint? Um, I don't know where you stand. You and I haven't had many social activism uh, type conversations, but um, what did you, did, did you have any feelings about that? Like, you know what? He, the reason why he said he was kneeling is because African-American people uh, are being oppressed in this country. He made a very general statement um, that I'm on the record of saying I wish that, you know, he would have uh, been able to elaborate a little bit more um, because mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a keenly aware that there's just so many Americans that just don't understand the nuance behind that statement. It's a very valid statement, but people in America, especially those who aren't intimate with the nuance, will see – you know, him on TV and say, hold on, he's a millionaire. There's a ton of millionaire athletes rolling around, you know, and, and entertainers and et cetera, and just regular old, you know, successful, you know, teachers and, and police officers and doctors and lawyers. What does he mean African-American people are oppressed? So from that standpoint, did you have any, any feelings about his statements and, um, you know, anything there? 
and what he was trying to, you know, point out and highlight? You know, simply no. At that point when he when he made that decision, it was for, – for me, the, the, he may have done himself a, a better uh, service of doing just like you said and articulating – Making adding uh, specifics or adding details to that to that broad to that broad statement. I did, it didn't have again it didn't that was, he's an individual making that choice because he he thought that that was that was the right that's what he needed to do. And I, I don't have yeah just he got on he made a choice and it real like I said just didn't have. I didn't have the same type of uh, visceral reaction that other people or that made it such a. Um, a hot but a hot uh, hot button political issue, and I think that's a okay. A, so right? then, you, you decide you you decide you want to make a you stand for something you want to make a, a statement, then you're you're making there's not he's not breaking any laws he's he's not hurting anybody right he's not he's not uh, 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 putting anybody else's in danger by by kneeling, and you know he he made that choice and then any anything that may happen as a result of that good or bad right or wrong. Now he has to be able to absorb those the results of his actions. That that that's the way I look at it. I think it, 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 that's the because I look at individuals, right? He made that choice. He's standing for something. He sees this as a problem, and he wants to. He's going to try and make a difference doing that, and and so that's what he did. So that um, goes along with the whole idea of patriotism in this country, and there are certain people that expect mm-hmm. that to look a certain way. I'm on the record of sharing with people that I stopped um, saying the Pledge of Allegiance probably when I was in high school. I, I, I gained a certain level of awareness, and I saw certain things that I perceived about this country that I didn't like, and there's certain things that I just couldn't uh, put my finger on and rationalize and understand the, the, the validity behind uh, the treatment of, of a certain segment of, of, of people in this country, being African-Americans, those of us who are in, in descendants of enslaved Africans, uh, especially when it comes to in dealing with law enforcement and the way laws uh, and policing is done differently in, in predominantly African-American communities versus uh, non-African-American communities. Uh, I saw a clear difference, and I saw a lot of hypocrisy coming up. So because of those differences and because of the hypocrisy that I perceived and that I saw, uh, you know, coming up and growing up in the inner city, uh, I stopped saying the Pledge of Allegiance just intuitively. It just didn't feel right to me. It just didn't feel right to me to, you know, pledge allegiance to this flag and, and, and the things that it said, um, you know, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Like, looking at the way American history has unfolded, it, it was clearly, this has clearly not been a story of liberty and justice for all. And I just didn't feel right saying that every day. And so I stopped saying it long before it became a, a, a big deal in the media, um, but I stopped saying it. And to this day, I don't feel comfortable, you know, saying the Pledge of Allegiance or anything like that. I just don't feel, I just don't feel like um, this, is, this country has, has done anything to this point to live up to those ideals. And, you know, we all fall on the spectrum of how much we think we're going in that, how well we're doing in terms of going in that direction. Um, but, you know, I am where I am, wherever that is on that spectrum. But with that being said, as, you know, the holders, uh, generally speaking, people view military personnel as being the holders of American patriotism and, the, you know, the people who uphold it and, and are the embodiment of those things. Um, how does what I just shared with you, uh, res- does, how does that sit with you uh, in any way? 
Um, just anything. Any any thoughts that come to mind in terms of what I just shared in terms of my feelings about that? Well, as it relates to as it relates to uh, to to the military and, and and patriotism, and I don't think patriotism means you know, my, my country right or wrong, my country, right? I, I think you have, uh, the country is made up of individuals, right? And so individuals have, they've made mistakes and, and they're in different, in different parts. The, the, looking back now, the, the reason why I had, you know, we talked earlier about having a, a greater, uh, under, a greater appreciation of, of the country is, be, is because in, once you remove yourself from it and you live and, and, and you operate in these, in some of these countries, you can see the differences in the way that individuals interact and, and some of the things that they value. And with all the, all for sure, all the mistakes that have, that have been a part of you know, American history and all the, you know, the challenge, just like you, you mentioned, I can't, I can't, you had a different upbringing than I did. And so I, I, I can't relate to how you uh, were, you know, you, you were brought up or where you, you lived because we, we just had a different, a, a different upbringing. Um, but the, the 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 specialness that I see in the United States is that you originally some of the some of the the concepts of that individual individualism the, the freedom to be able to make your make the most out of your life in a in a meritocracy meritocracy where the the best should not always of course but the best should rise and and, and be able to to give back to to the the country with their gifts. That stuff uh, doesn't exist uh, over in a lot of these countries overseas, especially in the countries that I, that I, you know, I operated in. You had a a small ruling class that was never or very never going to change, or it was going to be extremely difficult for change, and they would do everything they could to keep their their power, and then at the same time they would push and re and repress and and keep the the rest of the 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 people down, and there was never, nothing in that system that would they would be there wasn't a constitution or there wasn't a a contract in place that articulated values for them to for the rest of the individuals in that country to be able to rise rise up to they were just expected to be in a a a lower position and and at the expense of the or at for the benefit of the of the elites now this country i'm sure has had I was going to say that this country for sure has had challenges and has had that some of that stuff kind of in different parts and in different years, you know, different parts of the history, man, there's been absolutely has been challenges. The, the, but the ability to constantly try to pick yourself up and, and, and excel and, and, and be an individual freedom is something that's built into the, to our DNA. So I wanted to jump in really quick just to add that, um, you know, that's always been the, the, the challenge in, in America is that everything that you mentioned about meritocracy and, and individualism, um, it's like a, a duality that's hard for us to really process and, 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 um, and get on the same page. Uh, when I say us, I mean just very people who sit on the opposite sides of that, um, you know, understanding, because I will share, I will say to you that, not all, but there are segments of Americans that are still oppressed in those same ways. Uh, there are certain systemic structures that still exist today, primarily in the criminal justice system, 
that still oppresses primarily low-income and poor uh, African-American people. Um, and, you know, the, the same way where, you, where in one sense you could say, you know, America is a meritocracy, and if you're an individual who has certain skills, you can rise up, that is absolutely true. And we've seen that across all different ethnicities. But it's also true that America also uses certain systems to still um, uh, oppress and, and, and I say oppress or manipulate or, um, you know, I guess oppress is the best word, to kind of um, hamper the ability for certain individuals to, to utilize their, their abilities and, and their merits to, to reach a, a certain level of success. And, again, the best way for our listeners, because we're running out of time, uh, if anyone's listening to this that is not familiar with the work of um, the book called The New Jim Crow, um, Michelle Alexander, she has several YouTube videos where she summarizes that work. Uh, there's a, uh, a Netflix documentary that I recommend that all Americans watch called 13th. Um, there are certain things that kind of go on that, that a lot of Americans aren't familiar with. If you never grew up in the inner city uh, like Compton, like the, the director of the, the documentary 13th, you may not understand the nuance and the motivation behind why she wanted to create that. Uh, Ms. Ava DuVernay, who also created the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King movie, she's also working on uh, the Black Panther movie that, for Marvel. She's a, a very uh, highly recognized and, and acclaimed uh, movie director, but she, someone funded her to study and do a documentary on anything that she wanted to. And she did a documentary on, documentary on the industrial prison complex and mass incarceration in America. And the things that she um, uncovered by speaking to a cross-section of individuals across several different uh, political ideologies uh, is that there's still a social caste right here in America with the way that uh, policing goes on and the way that, you know, again, underserved, under, excuse me, underprivileged and poor uh, African-American communities the ways they're, they're targeted for financial gain uh, is despicable, is disgusting, and it shows that while, yes, meritocracy, meritocracy and individuality can produce a certain level of success in America, there's also uh, a, a lane or a level that if you grew up in the wrong family, if you were born into the wrong family in a wrong neighborhood, your, your life and your lifestyle can be railroaded and how the system isn't necessarily designed to get you out of that is more so designed to perpetuate and feed off of off of that, um, you know, that those circumstances. And you know, again, I don't have the time to go into it any deeper. I'm not sure, Nick. I know I've sent you things over the past few months. I'm not sure if you've gotten into any of that stuff, but um, that's a duality in a sense because that's out there as well. Um, would are you aware, do you have that level of awareness that you would say, you know, I do know that that's a lane and a reality in America as well, or is that something that you're just not aware of? So that, that individual book that you that you referenced, that's not something that you had, you had passed along in any of our, if any of our previous, uh, okay. any of our previous talks, any of our previous talks or anything. Okay. But in terms of, let me just ask this and, uh, and then we're going to close out, but, um, just in terms of like what I shared about like if you're born into the wrong family, wrong neighborhood, then maybe it's not, um, you know, as simple as, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, anyone can, can, can get to a certain path. Is that a reality for you uh, or is that something you're aware oh, of? Sure. You understand, or is that man, ab- out- 
absolutely you got talent yes absolutely that you're the air the areas that you're that you're you're born into and and the locations and the the lack of a family structure absolutely has presents other challenges and makes it uh, much more difficult for anyone to be able to move and make a make a life out of their out of themselves absolutely yeah sure absolutely okay so so here's the deal nick i i asked you for 60 minutes of your time and we're right at that mark um i don't you can let me know uh did you have any any time to uh you know we'll close out with the iconoclast uh did you have any time to to share any more thoughts on, on what's going on in syria um or or do you need to jump and we need to just go ahead and close out with sharing some info about what the iconoclast is all about no, so I got uh, I got about ten more minutes, and then I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to roll. So yeah, if you wanna, we can talk whatever else you want. Okay, so I got about ten more minutes for sure. Perfect, perfect. So I just want your thoughts on Syria, and when I say your thoughts on Syria, I know that you know uh, again you have unique perspective on this because you like you said you've been to those uh, sunny and sandy places, um, and you've interacted with some uh, some people in high places. Um, so I. Personally, for the listeners, uh, my regular listeners know that I don't really engage in, in the media um, and, and, like, the polit- political world uh, and a, at a deep level, so I don't have much thoughts about what's going on. Uh, generally speaking, I'm about peace, and I don't think that, um, you know, I, would li- I hope that I can live. I don't, I'm not really optimistic, but I was going to say I, can hope, I hope that I'll live to see the day where, uh, you know, dip- diplomacy will really become a thing in terms of learning higher order you know, critical thinking and social and emotional intelligence skills so that people can stop bombing each other uh, to solve problems. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that day will come. With all that being said, that's kind of where my feelings lie when it comes to anything that involves, you know, uh, force in that way. Um, but I know that you can provide some insight to the listeners, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to do that. Um, any type of insight that you can provide, uh, and I know that you're going to provide even deeper insight uh, on one of your podcast shows, so that'll be the perfect uh, transition into us talking about that as well. So the, I mean, we could talk for a long time on on that topic, but one of the things that when I when I read that they had, we had launched um, all those missiles and in, into that into Syria was the uh, the amount of different different players uh, on the ground, right? And so if you think about if you think about uh, the Assad, uh, the one that was a, for a long time was in charge of Syria, you know they come from a they're, they're called Alawites, right? So they're a small sect of Islam, and they're in the minority. And so they've been in power for a long time, and there's always been this this uh, friction and this uh, resistance re, uh, between uh, other groups in, inside of Syria, and it back in the early 80s, I think it was 82, where Assad's father bulldozed the, the city of Homs and, and literally killed tens of thousands of citizens in that, in that area as a way to crush the a resistance that was building at the time. And that resistance was primarily the, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a major, Sunni, Sunni group, and they were at the time and strong in, 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 in that part of the world. They're the same people that killed, you, know, you speak about diplomacy, they're the same people that killed, that killed uh, Anwar Sadat in, I think, 79, after he had gone over and made peace with the Israelis in that famous Rose Garden ceremony with Jimmy Carter. You know, they had that, that famous picture, I think it was 77, where the three of them are, are, holding, are, holding, uh, are holding hands. And so 
I mean, it, it's not no surprise that the Syrian regime is bad, you know, bad dudes, and that that all of a sudden that they decided to use chemical weapons, however they decided to use them, is is also like not a surprise. I mean, we we've known for a long time that they're bad. They they treat their people horribly. They small minorities in power crushing the rest of their people, and they have this stockpile of of chemical weapons. So you have that kind of that background. On top of that, you have the fact that on the ground, in, in court, if you listen to the news, you got the Americans there, you got the Brits, you got uh, Hezbollah, you got the Iranians, you got the Syrians, you got the Russians. Th- there's all these different groups on the ground that's fighting, and, and, and the challenge is whose side is, you know, and I have air quotes here, whose side is good, and who 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 are we backing, right? Who's who's the group that we're backing and what's our ultimate policy objective. And I don't think that has been articulated. And I really don't find the thing anybody even knows. And and it just seems like they're just, we are just as Americans are just putting people on the ground in danger without really having, really having an objective of what the end state, the end state is. And it's really easy. The thing is, it's really easy to, for individuals that aren't putting themselves in harm way to, yeah, let's send in the, this unit or send in that unit. Let's go get them and let's launch launch missiles because well, you don't have to strap it on. And you don't have to get on the ground and you're not in a, in a dangerous situation. It's, it's, it's totally different for when your loved one, your mom or your dad or your, your brother, your sister, wife, or husband is now set in that location without a clear objective and without a clear – Understanding of the rules, what the rules of engagement are, what we're doing, and and it, it's just a lot, man. There's a lot going on in Syria right now that's not being articulated in the in the news cycle. Do you feel like um, the 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 current administration is, um, I guess, from what you just said, it sounds to me like you feel like they're being a little bit um, irresponsible in their in their actions at this point and not really considering. Uh, the average, uh, you know, like you said, the people have to strap it on and go over there. Um, did you ever, did you, you know, man, again, we're going to have to have more conversations, but, man, I can go so many places with that, and I'm going to try to not. Let me see. Um, I guess do, do you feel like, um, bottom line is, do you feel like Americans should be there, uh, or do you think that, you know, we don't need necessarily, American soldiers and the political leaders don't necessarily need to be jumping into every you know, thing that goes on overseas. No, I don't think that we need to be in Syria. There's not a, I look at it from the, from the outside. There's not a, there's not a a political, there's not a U.S. strategic objective there. There's I mean, what, what are we, we're essentially moving ourselves into uh, the middle of a civil war. And historically when we've gotten involved in civil war type environments, it never ends well. For the United States, and you can talk about Lebanon, right? We said Lebanon was in a civil war from the late 70s up through the mid 90s, and a large part of the infighting had to, you know, Syrian influence running around, and 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 what? So in Lebanon, early 80s, Reagan sent the Marines over there in a humanitarian type mission to help help Lebanon or the Lebanese people. And what happened? You had car bombing that was launched by. By Hezbollah killed a lot of Marines. You had other attacks against American citizens. Eventually, the decisions made to pull the Marines out after they saw they suffered uh, x amount of casualties. Uh, and and so 
America, we didn't really accomplish anything. We just had soldiers, uh, Marines die in, in Lebanon on, I mean, you can make the case that for, for no reason, right? And you don't ever want to stay for no reason uh, because humans, Americans lost their lives. But the way that we just pulled out really left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. I mean, the Clinton administration made the same type of decision in Somalia. They got involved in what is the civil war. Americans died and they left. I mean, that, that's the worst thing you can do for a soldier is to put them into a position where they, they're in, a, in harm's way. They, they, they suffer casualties to some of their friends or potentially you know, themselves. And then you just pick up and leave. And, you, and there's a lot of that they have to deal with in that because there's the, the sense of loss. Yeah. You, you, you feel like you need to take care of your buddies. I mean, and so you got that. You got all kinds of areas where you're in the civil – and look, in Africa and Rwanda, again, in the civil war, and Bosnia in the civil war. And it, it never seems to end well for, for the United States when they get involved in these policing actions. No, that, you said a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and that leads us into – that critical, uh, you know, eye that you have and uh, that historical perspective that you're able to bring, you know, that is the foundation for uh, the Iconoclast podcast uh, to this point. And I know you cover a lot of different topics, uh, you know, through that podcast, but what I enjoy about it uh, to this point, um, you know, is that you choosing to do this work and you choosing to do this podcast is one of the things that I notice as a theme is that you are bringing historical perspective and, to the various topics that you discussed, and whether it be uh, military-based or whether it be economic-based or whether it be, you know, uh, healthcare-based, you know, um, you're bringing a historical perspective um, and a, a, a different perspective than what, you know, most people are speaking about these various issues. Um, so, and one of the things that I really appreciate and one of the things that we immediately connected on as adults, because, you know, we went this this decade of not talking to each other uh, pretty much. And then all of a sudden when we got together again, the thing that I noticed that we agreed upon and that we were speaking the same language about was that we, um, we reject the whole idea of the red team and the blue team, you know, this, that, you know, we believe, I'll just say that we reject the divisiveness uh, behind the political ideologies that we are, uh, you know, at odds, and that, um, you know, that we can't figure out a way to come together and, and be successful and, 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 and create uh, a more healthy uh, society. And we, uh, we agree that a lot of times uh, some of these individuals uh, in power situations, they use uh, the red team, blue team, you know, Democrat, Republican, conservative, and, and, and liberal, and all these various terms uh, as ways to, 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 to yield and wield power and gain power, and ultimately it ends up hurting citizens. Uh, you know, and I know that's a place we connect on, and I know that's a foundational, yeah. uh, you know, tenet of, of the Iconoclast. So just tell our listeners, you know, about the Iconoclast and, uh, you know, what you want them to know and, and how they can find you there. So the vision for the Iconoclast is simple. It's to change the way people see the world. That's it. And so in order to get, just like you said, in order to get to an area where we can develop common ground, we've got to get outside the paradigm of every two or four years, I pick a team whether it's red or it's blue, blue, and then I, I root for that team. I, whatever, whatever that means, whether I campaign, whether I, I donate money, whether I you know, debate with my neighbors, whatever that means, I root for that team every two to four years because I, I think something's going to um, – there's going to be a change or we're going to be able to fix a perceived problem. And then at the end of that cycle, the red or blue team wins and nothing changes, right? And then nothing changing meaning that 
the larger, we'll just call it, the administrative state continues to grow at the expense of citizens. And that political, it's really, it's not red versus blue, it's the political class versus the rest of us. And, and so that's what, by providing that history, just like talk about, I want to try to get history in to see why we are at a certain, why we are at this problem and at this place. And because once you can understand the history of it, now you see things outside of that red and blue paradigm and you look at, oh, this is what caused the, the issue that I'm talking about now. And by voting for a red versus blue person is not going to fix the issue that started back here. So until we can figure out what started, why this issue started, I, I'm, I'm, by going and pulling a lever for a team or rooting for a team doesn't get us any closer to fixing an issue. And so you, you mentioned the diversity of topics that we, we discussed. It's, it's, it's just that. It's, what are some of the, the issues? What are some of the challenges that people are talking about? Well, we, talk, we, we got retirement. We talk about building a business. We talk about health care versus health insurance. And we, we, we talk about the tax system. And, and as we're building and we're learning the history of the issue to be, better educate and to help others see the world differently than they do now. And you talk about education. <laughs> education, that's right. That's why I should have left that out. Education, for sure. Uh, and uh, the, the changes in the systems and the understanding of history education. Yeah, you, that was a great episode that we did, Absolutely. by the way. Shameless plug. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Shameless plug, episode three of the Iconic <laughs> Class. You can hear uh, Nick and I uh, talking about education as uh, some of uh, my listeners may not know, but I'm, I'm passionate about education. I'm working on the education startup, um, and I am truly uh, an iconic class, as Nick has educated me on uh, that concept and what it means, and I'm so proud of, of the ground we covered, so I hope that you guys have a chance to listen to that. So, how, so um, in closing, Nick, man, I, I want to thank you, you know, for your time, man. It's, it's been a joy. I, I've been looking forward to this day for us to kind of, you know, get this conversation down um, for, for the Race Haven community to hear and get to know you a little bit better. And how can they find you and the Iconoclast? The Iconoclast podcast. Sure, so the, the, the Iconoclast uh, is on iTunes. I try to put out an episode once a week, uh, shoot for Monday or Tuesday uh, for it to come out. And then also uh, the website, uh, shatteringicons.com. Uh, if you want to join the newsletter or leave a comment or any, any interact uh, as we do. Awesome. And for the listeners, just so you know, Nick, he goes by a, uh, a what he calls a stage name um, during the show. Uh, so just be, be aware that it is indeed the same person that uh, I'm talking to here today. So, um, again, Nick, man, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you extending me a few more minutes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close out the show with the final uh, words to, to our listeners, and uh, you and I will, will be talking again real soon, man. But thanks again for your time. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott. Talk to you soon. All right. For all of our Race Haven listeners, I really appreciate you all. I appreciate you all listening uh, to another episode of Race Haven. I hope that you were able to gain some perspective uh, that would broaden your mind and potentially broaden your mind and your heart. Um, you know, about your position and, 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 and how you see uh, the world and how, it, how it's uh, unfolding. Uh, please, please, please be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven podcast on the iPhone podcast app or the Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast and Stitcher apps. This will help the show gain more visibility and listeners. 
You can email us to share any thoughts or perspectives at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. And you can join our online community uh, and get all the information and all the shows at, race, at the uh, Race Haven Podcast Facebook page. And we have an online chat group at Race Haven Community Dialogue. Um, you can join us there. So in closing, a race haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Love y'all. Peace.